To this episode of the Views from Down Under. I'm Alex Tan, your host uh, for the program, and I'm here today. And all of us are online somehow. Uh, Orson Tan, Neil Van Vary, Nick Ku, and June. Uh, interestingly, uh, there's two pairs that are on the same places, but uh, <laughs> but we're still online. Uh, it's very interesting. The, the last two weeks has been quite interesting with lots of events happening as well. Um, what we're doing here is that uh, we pick the very interesting news from our, from our perspective to share uh, what our views are on this uh, issue. Two in particular caught our attention. Number one, the uh, ASEAN meeting that was hosted by Indonesia in Jakarta uh, just this past uh, week, uh, this past weekend, a couple of days ago. And secondly, the... Uh, upcoming G20 meeting that uh, is being hosted by Modi in New Delhi, right? Uh, for that particular meeting, it's quite interesting because uh, there's already some noted absences. Um, we know that uh, Vladimir Putin has not been traveling for sure, but surprisingly, Xi Jinping uh, of China will not be attending this meeting and sent uh, his uh, premier to go to that to attend the meeting instead of himself. And this will be the first meeting of the G20 that he actually missed, right? So all sorts of spe speculations happening with regards to domestic politics, uh, speculation about is this China's way of reordering the world order or something like that. So, but we'll, you know, we'll take it one at a time, this topic. So we'll go with the ASEAN meeting first. And may I ask my uh, colleague, uh, June, to get us rolling uh, on this particular topic. June, take it away. Uh, thanks, Alex. You know, uh, this uh, this meeting is uh, uh, coming at the heels, as we know, of two uh, very critical issues that are happening right now in the ASEAN. Uh, first, of course, is the escalation of the dispute in the uh, South China Sea. And we know that in the lead up to that, there have been two water cannoning events, uh, one against the Filipino resupply mission in the uh, our so-called outpost in there, and the other one just a day before the summit started against the Vietnamese uh, around the same area. And uh, this has been a, a major uh, talking point. Uh, in fact, uh, some analysts would say uh, a major failure once again by the organization to come up with important action after we've done with the talking points. And the other one, of course, is uh, what's been going on in, uh, in, in Myanmar in the past uh, two plus years. And uh, the, the sense that's coming out uh, out of the uh, conclusion of the meeting as, as uh, Indonesia was handing the leadership to Laos is this is pretty much is what outsiders have always thought about ASEAN, that um, on the one hand, there's still a failure of coming up with a stance on what's going on in, in Myanmar. In fact, 
even at the level of language, you know, uh, condemnation of what's going on in there and what's happening to some domestic art actors as Aung San Suu Kyi and uh, killings of uh, people that are not even involved in the rebellion, some innocent bystanders that happen to have the wrong ethnicity. Um, they never popped up. Uh, and then the South China Sea issue, of course, uh, is, is, is coming quite interesting. Uh, President Marcos was uh, quite strong about pushing back against the China narrative in saying that, you know, this is not about U.S.-China competition. This is about claimant states asserting their their sovereignty, and we're pushing back against that that narrative, which is this is quite uh, I think an interesting. Uh, thing to do for for Marcos right now, and it's coming at the heels of him, in fact, accepting the chairmanship after um, Lao in 2025 because Myanmar has refused to do so for for obvious reasons. The junta thinks it's not stable enough to be ASEAN chair in in 2026. So um, the sense in ASEAN is uh, this is ASEAN being ASEAN, you know. Um, uh, and we've said over and over again in this, this this podcast, there's a lot of premium being placed on conversation, but very little action coming out of this of these major summits. But I wonder what you guys think. Yeah, but sometimes you have to. Uh, oftentimes, actions of organizations, like particularly ASEAN, is also constrained by the design of the organization. In a way, uh, you have an organization that insists on non-interference and, you know, uh, consensus decision-making. And it actually makes it quite difficult, right, to come up with decision when you when you essentially have 10 veto players in the room, uh, different style of politics. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Uh, I uh, read uh, that ASEAN did come out with a statement with regards to Myanmar. Uh, and this is the first time that they've actually done it. Is that is that right? Uh, and what's that thing all about? It, it wasn't it wasn't a new statement as it was a stronger statement. So the ASEAN has its five point consensus regarding how they want the whole Myanmar conflict to be solved. And what happened at the summit was they used slightly stronger language that they would not have previously used. And I feel like a big reason for that is because ASEAN has refused to engage with the junta at, at, at any level. You know, they have, uh, as a, you know, regional organization, they've refused that. I mean, they have been within the, the ASEAN states, more bilateral uh, engagement, but ASEAN as a bloc has refused to engage the generals at all. And that actually, is, I feel forms a huge obstacle in in kind of solving the whole Myanmar issue. Because if you're not going to engage the generals, who definitely will have to play a, a role in the future of, of Myanmar, then how are you supposed to bring them back into the fold and, and engage the country? Because there, there will be no solution without the, the generals playing a role in it at all. What's the reaction of the generals, of the junta? to that statement that ASEAN came up with. June? Oh, thus far, they, they, they haven't issued an official statement yet, but one would get the sense that, well, uh, they did be pretty unhappy about it. Uh, so it's two things, that they'll be excluded from 
high-level meetings, as Orson has said, which which I agree is really counterproductive because then if you don't engage them, in what way then can you involve them in a future multilateral solution? Because let's think about this. Uh, I think the future of Myanmar will be bleak in the absence of uh, any kind of outside intervention. Uh, so long as the military has that level of coercive capacity, which it does, and it's so long as it remains ethnically divided, which it is today, I think conflict is going to be uh, in the near future. So uh, the some of the other bilateral solutions that have been proposed as an uh, intervention of uh, the U.S. and 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 other actors uh, haven't you know haven't really gone much. Uh, ASEAN is where they're pinning their hope, but it, apparently. Uh, this this latest statement seems to be throwing a wrench to that. And the second one is, of course, you're being taken away the from from the, the, the chairmanship. That should make yeah, you quite right. quite unhappy about it. I That's suppose. right, Nick. Well, we can actually look at this from a broader historical perspective. I mean, since the regime in Myanmar came to power through a military coup in in the uh, early '60s, I mean, it's been basically a tragedy for the country. It's a very resource-rich country. We have lots of um, very intelligent people who are willing to make a contribution. But because of the fact that the state is basically captured by the military, and the military is digging, has been digging its heels in for decades, uh, this is a major tragedy both for Myanmar and for the wider Southeast Asian region. And mm. it really just highlights the fact that somehow ASEAN initially when it decided to expand to take in Myanmar, the idea was that ASEAN would be able to socialize that regime. Uh, and there was too much emphasis or over-optimism about ASEAN norms and the power of ASEAN norms to actually achieve these goals. And the Myanmar case really just shows the you know, weakness of ASEAN norms at the end of the day. Now, some might say, well, this is a hard test, but it's precisely the hard test where you you show that norms matter, right? So the fact of the matter is we have a regime now uh, in ASEAN, which is bringing a lot of problems to the organization. And this Mm -hmm. highlights the broader issue of Myanmar's alignment with China and the ability of extra regional powers to actually in effect, determine ASEAN's future. Now, mm-hmm. this, in, in many respects, highlights a second point, which is the divergence between rhetoric and reality. So this idea that ASEAN centrality is the kind of motive or you know, or major theme that, yeah. that, uh, that should dictate relations in, in, in the Southeast Asian, relation, uh, Southeast Asian region, it just continually comes up against reality, which is that it just diverges from reality. Mm-hmm. So in many respects, um, at the end of the day, while it sounds pretty bleak, the f- fact of the matter is somehow the ASEAN regimes uh, or the regimes that make up ASEAN need to somehow respond to the interests of great powers in the region. And, and that's I think, worth I think- a while. I think Nick, you 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 came up. You guys came up with many many interesting points, and 
with regards to uh, the issue of ASEAN uh, centrality itself, uh, the rules within ASEAN and the norms within ASEAN. The way I look at it, it's almost like ASEAN centrality becomes an aspiration, you know, uh, but but it's continually being tested by and eroded in a way uh, by the fact that ASEAN organizational rules themselves have made it difficult for them to essentially tackle some of these very difficult issues. Myanmar is a case in point, uh, Cambodia's attitude in certain points, the fact that when the Philippines uh, decided to put up a case against China on on its claim in the South China Sea, uh, ASEAN countries were not ready to back the Philippines up. So in a way, you have these norms, but norms are aspirational as well. Mm -hmm. And what ASEAN lacks in some way is the fact that the the tie-up of interests that are economic mainly are are not as strong as let's say in the European Union case where in everything goes through Germany so to speak uh, or, or or France well all the other many countries are tied up into the German economy so they they have a lot of yes the norms are out there that represents the EU but it is really backed up by significant economic interests uh, that inter EU, uh, intra, sorry, intra-EU interest. And our in our region of the ASEAN, that connection seems to be towards the external powers, right? The, the, the economic interest is towards China, towards Japan, Korea, US, right? Uh, and within us, you know, our, like, we can't, we, ASEAN doesn't have a lot of tools in its arsenal to convince or to move Myanmar the way that ASEAN wanted it, right? It's limited, uh, limited weapons, so to speak, limited tools on the arsenal, policy tools. So in a way, it hurts the aspiration of ASEAN centrality. But the, the limitation of tools to, to kind of sh- sway Myanmar towards a, a direction that is... is uh, in line with what the other ASEAN countries may want, is also by, in fact, a, a, a result of the design of ASEAN itself. ASEAN was designed and the whole idea or the, the aspiration for ASEAN centrality was designed so that these regimes in, in Southeast Asia, many of whom are not exactly democratic, you know, not exact, don't exactly, did not exactly fit the bill of what, America would have wanted during the Cold War period would have that space to to maintain their systems and maintain their sovereignty without the interference from either the communist bloc or the 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 liberal democracy the democratic bloc led by the states during the Cold War. And so what we are seeing right now is basically the remnants of that that historical system system design to to protect their their ability to you know be remain maintain their status quo. In fact, I, I, feel, I feel like the whole five-point consensus with Myanmar and the, the decision not to engage with the military junta on a, on a high level is very un-ASEAN. You know, 
for all the trouble that that Myanmar has brought through throughout the years of its membership with 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 in ASEAN, the the organization has never once said that they would not engage with the 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 generals at all. Suddenly, with the with the whole revolution and 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 the crackdown and all that, you have this sudden outcry from your external powers, and then ASEAN took a step that they've never took before. You know, in the initial announcement of the five point consensus and how they were going to go about addressing the whole Myanmar issue, it really did feel like ASEAN was actually bending its knee somewhat to to some external uh, influence. Mm. Hey, uh, I also noticed something interesting that uh, you guys might have noticed is that besides the ASEAN summit itself, there are a lot of things happening on the sideline there. Uh, you know, uh, India was quite active in uh, stretching its uh, its arms and uh, the Philippines just signed a uh, um, strategic partnership with Australia as well. So, uh, Neil, about the India's... Uh, should yeah. I say multi-alignment? Well, multi-alignment, strategic autonomy, India's sort of diverse engagement with all its partners, with uh, uh, the vigor and the eagerness that India always shows is always um, something that uh, marks it out. But they had quite a quite a, a comprehensive India-ASEAN summit, and that comes at the back of some very strong cooperation between ASEAN and India recently. Uh, again, which is you know, India and ASEAN have a free trade agreement, and India does not have many free trade agreements. And then last year they started an India-ASEAN multilateral maritime exercise as well. And ASEAN's always played a very central role as far as India's look east policy and act east policy and India's engagement with Asia is concerned. Um, India's played due heed to the idea of ASEAN centrality, but over the years in conjunction with how the organization is functioning and in conjunction with how the organization has sort of struggled, as we've just discussed, um, India's also become fairly active in some of the other multilateral platforms. And I suspect that there's a certain level of unease there as far as ASEAN is concerned, of whether India's trying to find an alternative to ASEAN centrality. Because two years ago, there was a push from ASEAN particularly to make sure that its own Indo-Pacific vision aligned with India's, because at that point in time, India had reinvigorated its commitment with the Quad. There were numerous multilaterals and trilaterals in the Indo-Pacific. So I suspect the the weakening of the ASEAN posture on account of how it works, on account of the veto players, and in a way, the watering down of ASEAN centrality is possibly creating some unease. And partners are noticing it. India certainly noticed it. Mm. Nick, sorry about that. The, the fact of the matter is that, as as we've noted, by design, ASEAN is a lowest common denominator type organization, yes. and has yes. been throughout yes. its history. Yep. So when outside powers uh, kind of go along with this idea of ASEAN centrality, it's not necessarily because. Um, it, or rather, it's more a case of it suits their interests, right? Uh, to have ASEAN pose as the the central actor in in Southeast Asia, when in fact this 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 claim has never really been tested. Uh, and so, what, for example, the South China Sea issue, um, you know, Philippines has a tough time because at the end of the day, uh, it has to rely on the United States to back it up for its claims. Right? It's not going to get help from its ASEAN uh, friends. So the more we 
go into this era of strategic competition since 2017, the more the contradictions are becoming a reality. So moving forward, uh, the future is not not a bright one for ASEAN. Uh, and there's, there's, you know, it's hard to say, uh, uh, but that's the reality. So yeah, I, 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 go ahead, go ahead, Nick. So, you know, this, uh, the, first of all, it shouldn't be a surprise. That, that's what I will say. I mean, mm-hmm. in 2004, when I was a PhD student, um, I wrote an article in the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs and the title was something along the lines of rhetoric versus reality. And the fact of the matter is 20 years down the road, we're still talking about the same contradiction between rhetoric and reality, right? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And and what do you make of the Albanese, uh, Nick, and then I'll turn to June from the Philippine aspect this time. What do you make of uh, Anthony Albanese signing this strategic partnership with uh, the Philippines? Well, it makes sense. I mean, first of all, they're both U.S. Uh, allies. They share common interests uh, in the sense of making sure that China doesn't dominate the region. So there's a convergence of interests there. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, in fact, one can say that actually Australian foreign policy, just as Filipino foreign policy has been in recent in recent years, quite active, right? And so this is just a continuation of trends. I mean, if anything, what we're seeing in our discussion today is a continuing trend or a continuation of trends that have been occurring for quite a while now. And just like this overall idea of strategic competition between the United States and China is a continuation of a trend, what we're seeing in the international relations of the region is a continuation of many trends that are coming together over time. Our hope, however, is that all this comes together in a way that can be managed in a relatively peaceful and stable way moving ahead. And based on our previous discussions, the mere, the fact that actually other countries in the regions are beginning to counterbalance and bring some stability and, and push back against Chinese activism is actually a relatively positive source of, of uh, hope for the future that actually will evolve in a more stable way. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's, Southeast it's, Asia is going to be a major part of this that's picture. Right. That's right. And this is the the thing that we have been talking about in previous episodes of the podcast about middle power agency in this sense, wherein it seems like the middle powers are picking up uh, some of the uh, maintenance of this organ, uh, maintenance of the rules-based international order within the South China Sea, Northeast Asia, Asia Pacific in general. Uh, I remember Peter Lee, our friend, uh, in his presentation in our conference down here in July, uh, talked about the fact that Australia, throughout the post-Cold, uh, the post-Second World War years, have actually benefited from this order, benefited from the alliance, without ever hosting uh, an American base officially, and and not bearing the cost of of uh, having an American base. You know, South Korea has a base, Japan has a base. You know, Philippines. Uh, has bases. So I, you know, this is just something aside. I wonder whether this strategic partnership uh, from the Australian to the Philippine side is telling the Philippines, please host more American bases so we don't have to host any. <laughs> so the, because I, I uh, our, our colleague and my former student, Chloe Wong, has written about uh, this enhanced defense cooperation agreement at the, uh, it was published in the interpreter at the Lowy Institute's online journal 
And they were talking, uh, she was talking about the social cause of having bases in the Philippines. And, and, and we know that, you know, growing up in the Philippines, you hear about these issues. And oftentimes, uh, the United States military has extraterritoriality rights uh, with regards to misdemeanors on and criminal and, and you know criminal activities that some of their servicemen did you know to Filipinos so it's uh there are social costs and so so when Peter talks about this idea that they didn't Australia never had to bear much of the cost but benefited a lot from the alliance it got me thinking you know maybe Australia should start signing up with everyone until Please base all your American bases there. So, and June, what do you think? And then, then after June's comment, we can talk about the we can talk about the um, G20 meeting. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, of truth to that, Alex. Uh, especially on the matter of social costs. In fact, if you could recall in 1991 when we kicked the Americans out of of, of two of their major bases and their remaining bases, the reason was the high social cost. Um, all of these crimes associated with uh, with servicemen that are that are based in there. But if you look back at uh, on the other hand on Australia Philippine relations, you're looking actually at something that's been there for quite some time, almost seven decades long, I think. And I think as Nick has been saying, um, this is more of uh, you know an upgrading by by both sides, in fact, and and most especially the. The Philippines. Uh, what I hear from the uh, foreign policy establishment is there is a realization in there that we are in fact uh, too reliant on the U.S. and we're trying to expand this as much as possible. Whenever we can develop a larger alliances at the strategic level, we will do so, and we're starting to work with that with with India uh, at the security level right now. And and and, and this this one is the other example, of course, of of bringing this alliance at the strategic level, uh, trade and economic engagement, as well as an annual meeting of, of, of the defense chiefs. Because uh, I think the foreign policy establishment in the Philippines realizes that, you know, uh, the direction of foreign policy in the Philippines is only as good as, uh, you know, who is going to be there in the next six years. And uh, this is, of course, a peculiarity of, of presidential systems with particularly strong executive like ours, that there's a possibility again of a 180 swing maybe sometime in the future in the event that, uh, um, you know, uh, that his daughter gets elected into the presidency. And so we're trying to, uh, the establishment is trying to safeguard itself from any kind of 180 swing once again by trying not to be reliant, even if we appear as if, you know, uh, Everything has a lot to do with what we can do in the South China Sea and our external security is something to the United States, trying to put our eggs in as many baskets as possible. And I, I think that point that, that June mentioned is very important. It's it's the individual agency of a sovereign state. And that's what the, this whole thing about ASEAN and a lot of people a lot of the comment commentary and analysis of the ASEAN summit miss. A lot of people have been talking about the ASEAN summit and the fact that Biden didn't go. She didn't go. They sent the deputies, and that you know, by Biden not being there, is a missed opportunity because then there's no American leadership for for the Southeast Asian region. But we are independent, sovereign countries. There, we don't need American leadership. We need to get the hell out of our region and let us do what do pursue our own interests. Stop trying to interfere in our affairs. That's that's what we want, right? 
And Philippines and, and these sideline meetings on the ASEAN summit, whether it's ASEAN Japan, ASEAN South Korea, uh, ASEAN India, that's exactly what we're doing. We have this, now we have a, a, a special ASEAN summit in, in, with Japan in Tokyo in December. You know, Singapore signs a security deal with Britain, sorry, the United Kingdom. Philippines is 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 en- enhancing their their partnership with Australia in talks with India. Japan. India, India right? yeah. yeah. See, I, I mean, that's essentially, I to me, what the original aim of ASEAN was in the first place. It was never to be a, a united block like the EU to that will will operate together. It was. It's basically a placeholder that allows the the individual members to, the the space for them to go and pursue their strategic autonomy. So I think the uh, we can we can move to the next topic, but before that, uh, the interesting thing that we're seeing right now with regards to ASEAN is that the more the merrier. Uh, each of the countries are actually pursuing quite a lot of their own, but it's actually creating this complex spider web, you know, of of, of relationship that are middle powers or just not necessarily just U.S. or China relationship, but. Uh, we see India being very active. We see South Korea being very active and Japan and Australia. And in some ways, New Zealand uh, as well, uh, which is engagement with the, the ASEAN partners. And, you know, it's creating this complex web of relationship. Maybe we can envision ASEAN centrality as the middle of that spider web. <laughs> so ASEAN is central in the spider web, but the complex relationship is coming around it. And a uh, very interesting uh, situation that we I, definitely I, I, see. I've always seen it as that that old Chinese proverb about fishing in muddy waters. And yeah. How it's easy to fish in it's easier to fish in muddy waters. Like for, <laughs> for ASEAN, the muddier the water, the better, right? That way you're not overly exposed to either one of the group, the great powers. You have all these competing interests of different varying levels in there, and everything's so like entangled up that you know it's it's not vulnerable in that sense. Yeah. There's one, there's one point that June did bring up, though, is the nature of one-term presidents in, like in the case of the Philippines. So the we have to be aware, and, and to our listeners, what we want to convey as well is that, yes, polit- in the past, people say that politics stops at the water's edge, but in reality, we know it doesn't, you know, and, and we know that domestic politics can affect foreign policy and foreign policy can affect domestic politics. So one point is the one-term situation of the presidents in the Philippines, but it also is true in South Korea. They're also one-term presidents. So the likelihood of these, of these uh, last time we talked about whether the U.S., Korea, Japan trilateral can last beyond this one-term presidency of President Yoon is uh, a, a real thing that the domestic political institutions can also be a important factor to consider with regards to international relations of uh, Asia-Pacific uh, in a way. And then the other part is, is, is uh, you know, how much of these institutional design, though, were because of the experience of many of our countries uh, in this region from the transition to democracy, uh, because they are afraid that authoritarians could come back up again. So they kind of purposely design it this way, but there are obviously effects, right? Uh, later on, let's move to this next one, uh, next next topic on the the what's happening right now, the G20. But actually, the reports about who's missing from this particular party, right? And I don't know if you guys have seen that report that uh, was published on Nikkei 
um, about the party elders reprimanding Xi Jinping. You know, if this story is true, this is quite different from how everybody understands that Xi Jinping is this demigod that can do no wrong uh, and has uber control and total control of the Chinese system. But before we get into that, what do you what do you see uh, with regards to India's hosting of the uh, G20? Is uh, India really milking this uh, to its ultimate advantage? May I start with Neil this time? Well, I, I, I mean, if you're the flavor of the month, you're going to try and cash in your chips, aren't you? I mean, it's, I, I, I suspect <laughs> that's what's happening to an extent. Uh, because, you know, Modi is really making a show out of this. I mean, much like the ASEAN summit, he's had 15 bilaterals on the sidelines of the G20. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of reporting about how, I mean, this is the culmination of the summit, but India's held the presidency all year. They've had over 200 meetings in 60 cities and how Modi's really pushing for the agenda for the global south, as it were, focusing on things like debt relief and food and security and climate change, to the extent that one of the conferences, one of the key conferences, is termed One Planet, One Earth, One Family, or something of that sort. So he's really pushing for it, and a key item on the agenda was to try and push for the African Union being made a permanent member of the G20, which has happened in the last hour which India would certainly consider to be a win, given that a lot of the analysis is focused on how possibly there's going to be no joint communique at the end of this particular summit, given the disagreements uh, in the bloc. But there is also that domestic element to it, because there is a a domestic advantage politically if you are um, essentially the leader leader hosting this big summit and and people are coming over and you're, you're, you're shaking hands with the US president and signing accords. So there is that there is a there is a domestic element to it, but again, it's it's I think India is certainly using this to also push for some of its own uh, foreign policy objectives, uh, be it pushing digital di- digital infrastructure or uh, enhancing its cooperation with the U.S. So I would I would say it's making the most of a favorable season. <laughs> I was I, I was watching the news here last night before the terrible, terrible game that we had against, the All Blacks had against France. A moment's silence for the New Zealand economy that's uh, now crashing because we've <laughs> lost. Uh, but the the French the French news was, was was going on about the G20 summit and the thing that they were picking up on and they had a, they had invited an expert from India to talk about was that the this, this G20 summit is actually the most heavily marketed G20 summit in the history of G20 summits. It's never been the amount of money spent and the amount of airtime and the amount of just pure marketing material being produced has never been at this volume for a G20 summit. And I feel like in in part it's it's the India's kind of aim or kind of opportunity to prove that it can take up some form of global leadership role because we've had BRICS where China yes. tries to show its yes. hand. You know, we have yes. the United States trying to reassert itself as a global leader. So India has been kind of looking for that it's shot to well, say that hey, it's India's opening and 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 I yeah. think that's that's why they I mean Modi's trying to clinch it with both hands because yep. 
I don't think BRICS gave India the opportunity to say, okay, we are the voice of the global south. You had that intense competition yes. with China, whereas G20, Xi's absence, Xi Jinping's absence does give you that opportunity. I mean, why else would you invite the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, you know, or, or, or the African <laughs> Union or, or Mauritius? <laughs> you know, countries in the global south with whom India has those relations. Um, and there is, there is always this newfound bellicosity, I think uh, is, is how I'd phrase it, in the sense that, oh, India's time is now. You know, and and yeah. and that certainly yeah. has a certain. Yes. I mean, in the domestic political narrative of that is entirely different and equally compelling. Some would argue. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Hey, June. Uh, it's in? interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that this is also coming at the heels of uh, some very uh, quite dramatic, I would say, uh, ethnic conflict that's occurring in in certain parts of India. And there's even uh, a, a point where the important talking point was, how do we address uh, Modi? Do we call him Prime Minister of India or the Prime Minister of Bharat? Yes, which, yes. Which the, know the, is, uh, the change of name. That's why the 15. Is, is, is India's other constitutional name. Absolutely. And, 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 and in the backgrounds of all of this is all of these civil society groups uh, that are talking about the state of India's minority in kind of a parallel G20 summit that's happening in there. So there's all of this uh, uh, nationalist clashes that are occurring at the both at the forefront and then in the back channels. And I wonder if you think that this is kind of shaping the way India tries to, to, to sell itself. As you yeah, know, I we've think already, we have we have already arrived. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think it's, it's. I mean, in a way, it's the diversionary theory. I mean, you pointed out to um, a long-standing ethnic conflict going on for months now in the northeastern state of Manipur. And that's that's a, that, that's that's certainly complicating things domestically. Um, there are also questions about, well, what is the status of minorities in India? And I suppose, you know, trying to, in a way bring in things like a possible name change, not really a name change, but the use of a different name which is already in the Constitution, as well as certain <laughs> other cultural factors, or even mm. trying to alter the election timetable and changing... At, at the moment, I think the Modi government is also trying to change uh, laws around elections and laws around the, 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 the judicial code in its entirety. And it's, I suspect it's a bit of a twofold ploy here where on the international stage you're saying well we've arrived here we are this 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 great wishva guru as they call themselves which is a global translates as a global teacher and domestically as a result we're altering and removing those last sort of those last chains of occupation as some of the bjp might call it yeah by the, by the way uh i think there's uh we have to remind ourselves that modi's india uh in certain uh, indices of democracy has actually shown recession and backsliding of uh, of, of democratic uh, rules. Uh, so it's the nationalism part and the populism part that seems since COVID, uh, the pandemic, and all of a sudden the Indo-Pacific term come in, has really kind of shoved all of those r relatively non-democratic movement mm -hmm. by Modi under the carpet. Yes. Nobody seems to be bringing it up as much these days. Well, well the uh, most telling sign of that was the White House um, press conference, which, which that's they right, had, that's right. you know, when Modi went to the U.S. for a state visit. For a, for, for a U.S. administration, 
a central plank of the administrator of the Biden administration was talking about democratic norms and human rights, and yet there was no mention, at least publicly, of democratic backsliding and the concerns around minority rights in India. And that sort of ref was referring to more to your point, as you made, Professor Tan, that after the Indo-Pacific, you know, gained traction, as it were, those concerns, democratic concerns about India, were almost quite slightly shoved to the side. Yeah, so in a way, uh, interests do trump values, values. Yep. <laughs> I suppose, Absolutely. Uh, in some ways. I, I, would, I would almost argue that, you know, having these sort of like minority suppression and, and democratic backsliding and all these problems are, uh, you know, you have to tick that box before you can become a, re a, a, a great power. Yeah. You know, look yeah. at yeah. the United yeah. States, you look at China, it's, it's all symptomatic, you know? Yeah, that's and that's, right. That further... Convinces Modi that India's time is now, right? Because yeah. it looks at it looks at the countries that claim to to want to shape the world in their image or the system in their image at this current age, and you look at them. What one is a one is the the old old bastion of democracy that's rotting from the inside, and the other one is a, a purely you know, dictatorial authoritative system that, mm. that doesn't care about rights at all. And then if both of them can do it, why why can't he? He's just following <laughs> the checklist. <laughs> I'll ask Nick about the uh, as our uh, resident foreign policy expert on uh, China here. I would like to ask Nick about the uh, glaring absence of uh, Xi Jinping in this uh, meeting. I won't ask about Putin because he can't leave Moscow or any place else; <laughs> otherwise, he'll be arrested. But before I before uh, Nick uh, answers this question, uh, this is just a tongue-in-cheek thing, uh, Neil mentioned that Modi already had 15 bilaterals, right, uh, in just ahead of these G20. I suspect uh, the first question that Modi asks uh, the leaders that he meets, what do you think if we change our countries, Nate? You know? <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Get a support first before we decide to do that. <laughs> Nick, go ahead. Yeah, the fact of the matter is, this has been a very bad 12 months for Xi Jinping. And in agreed, many agreed. respects, it is a, a very, in, in many respects, it's a positive thing because the reason why the region can be stable in the future is precisely if China understands that there are limits to the degree of coercive diplomacy it can practice in the region. So the fact that, you know, domestically, it's not able to sustain a more uh, coercive foreign policy is, is going to be a good thing. But having said that, I'm speculating because I'm extrapolating and, and assuming that as these headwinds domestically uh, are experienced by China, that somehow it will cause Xi Jinping to adopt a more restrained foreign policy. And that certainly is the hope, right? Um, one thing is clear, the reports are coming out from China over the last year. Uh, suggests that the economy is definitely not as strong as Xi Jinping would like us to believe. And that, I think, is a positive in the sense that it will serve as a restraint on the regime. So, you know, it is very clear that the stability of the region moving forward in the next few decades is going to depend on how China grapples with its role in the region and understands that it can play an important part in the, role, in the region, but it has to be one where it is uh, promoting stability rather than engaging in an aggressive foreign policy where the fact of the matter is, when Xi Jinping took power in 2012, 
it had relatively good relations with the rest of the region. But yeah. in 2023, it's very hard to identify even, even well. Even North Korea doesn't have good relations with China necessarily. So it's I very hard to even identify any particular country that has uh, unmitigated positive relations with China. That surely is a negative. And then add on top of this, the last 12 months where the economy has not been doing well, and you add it all together, and Xi Jinping has presided over a decline in the Chinese position in, in the international system. Yeah, well, you know, to, uh, to add on top of that, Nick, it's a great points that you brought up. Orson and I are here today in Prague. Uh, we're here for a conference, the European Consortium for Political Research. I happen to meet a professor here uh, in Prague. We're in, they also, in the Czech Republic, also had that decline in relationship Uh uh, the, the turning point was around 2018, uh, when the rela economic relationship between the Czech Republic and China also deteriorated. I think that that it's very interesting. It, I, to me, it's that turning point of not the 2012 when when he assumed power, but it's the 2016 when he he changed the constitution. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden, he became all, all powerful, and you know this political economy thing comes back again, you know, it goes with Mansur Olsen's idea of a succession problem, uh, Robert Bates's idea of prosperity and violence, you know, it comes back again, wherein you reintroduce a succession problem. And yes, you the CCP has this monopoly of violence. But but at the same time, though, you have a situation wherein, you know, you as a stationary bandit is, is adding more risk to the system because now external actors do not understand what the system looks like, right? There are many reports about how difficult it is to, to do investment in China since COVID and certainly 2018, post 2018. Uh, it also the timing, all of it, all, all of the timing points to Xi Jinping strengthening his hold and abolishing the term limit, right? Uh, there's report yesterday about the world's biggest, biggest sovereign fund the Norwegian sovereign fund, one, one point some odd trillion dollars, they are withdrawing from their office in Shanghai and they're moving their operations, I believe, to Singapore uh, or, but they're moving out of Shanghai. Uh, they said that, they said that, that it doesn't mean that they're not investing in China or doing anything like that, but there's a sign there that consulting offices what, uh, are being raided and, you know, all of these for supposed economic espionage and stuff like that. What I'm worried about is that from an economic side, from the regional perspective, many countries in the world are very much tied up to the Chinese mm -hmm. economy, either their number one or number two trade partner. And the slowing down of the Chinese economy is a cause for concern to the region uh, in the sense that it could mean that our own economic performances this next few years would not be particularly good. And, and, and it's added on top of it is the geopolitical tensions uh, that we face today. So um, yes, Nick, you know, it could, it could reorient the attention of the CCP to domestic po political matters, but there's also a risk that you know, diver if diversionary theory of uh, of conflict is is right, there's also a risk that they might do something just to divert attention away from all these domestic political problems. Well, Anybody want to chime in? 
if that's the case, then it's going to exacerbate the underlying problems that the that Xi Jinping has introduced into Chinese domestic politics and foreign policy over the last ten years. Agree, agree, so that's, totally that's agree. Bad news for all of us if that's the case. And it is now that of course we know that it's a structural problem of authoritarian regimes that they have a succession problem. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. the that's the basic problem they have when competing with liberal democracies where the succession issue is less of a problem. Although, as we're probably going to discuss with Trump, this is a whole different ballgame. Right? <laughs> yeah. You might actually have a succession problem in liberal democracies. But having said that, from a relative perspective, that's a, a rel historically rare problem. It, yeah. It's a much more common historic, historical problem in an authoritarian regime. Agree, but you know what I'm. What I, I guess what she she has done is made it worse, right? So okay. uh, when uh, uh, after you know the first set of uh, post nineteen seventy nine leaders, they seem to have some kind of agreement, right? Okay. On you have you sit for two terms and then you come down. So in the in the second half of your uh, in the in your second five year term, we will introduce the the next leader, right? So in a way, the market can kind of react. They have time to react to this next leader. But Xi Jinping just automatically took that out. You know, so right now, if you are if you are a foreign investor or foreign act, you know, any country dealing with China, you don't know what's gonna who's gonna be next, whether the rules of the game are still gonna apply. But obviously, the rules of the game are already changing, and and invest and investors are voting with their feet. Yep. So it, it I, in in a way that's where the political economy came from comes in right the so the political actions that China undertook in 2016 and very good at shooting themselves in their in their in their foot is really showing up now and and I think that's the, that's yeah. a problem with his absence from the G20 because if he's missing the G20 for the first time and then we've got APEC coming up at the end of end of the year if he if he doesn't engage with the the global the, the the global countries on these sort of economic forums, then how do we you know how do we work together with China? Because China is uh, the central cog of the global economy at the moment. Yeah, you know, with with it's not like we're talking about the Soviet Union that was that sat outside of our our of the global economy in the the eighties and the seventies. We are talking about the world's largest. Manufacturing produce uh, power. You know, it produces how many percent of, of all the goods. Everything we have is made in China, and if we can't engage in it, if we we can't find a way to, to, you know, navigate the the tension, the geostrategic competition, and still maintain the trade. Then everyone's gonna suffer. It's it's a lose lose situation at the moment. Yeah, well, but from Austin's point, this is exactly the reason why China will not be exercising global leadership. Or it just, cannot. It or is, cannot. It's dysfunctional exercise. domestic yeah. politics doesn't allow for it, right, Jun? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it yeah. cannot do so. Uh, it cannot because you know we we the 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 information that we get are you know so how should I say it's manipulated that you know and and if we. Think of it. Thinking from an economic market, you would need good information for that market to react. But these information, some of them are manipulated. Look at the the number of real estate bankruptcies that are happening. This is serious stuff, you know, very serious stuff. 
Guys, what do you make of that report from Nikkei that the party elders reprimanded Xi Jinping? Do you think that's credible? Yeah, I was actually quite skeptical about this because, you know, obviously the the words used by the reporter, I mean, any any reporter can say anything they want. At the end of the day, uh, what exactly, how does one define reprimand and et cetera, et cetera. So um, what, what I will say is that the fact that the economy has not been doing well for quite a while is probably the more important issue in terms of uh, Xi Jinping's uh, uh, status in the uh, political party. in China, yeah, the party in particular. So that's yeah. the issue. I mean, if he can't turn this ship around, then this guy's in in trouble. I don't care how many uh, terms he wants mm. to give himself. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you know, I'm I'm also skeptical in in the sense that uh, uh, because juxtaposing it to the information that we get about how strong he is, how he's able to clean house and all of that. But on the other hand, we we do understand that political parties, no matter how author, you know, authoritarian, totalitarian, they're always factions. You know, they're always the the different factions within. Uh, and Communist Party of China is definitely very, very factionalized. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, what we know of is a dominant coalition headed by Xi Jinping. You know, somehow able to to control the party since 2012. Uh, to now, he consolidated it in 2016, his coalition, therefore being able to abolish that term limit. But at the same time, though, uh, it, this is all predicated in the fact that the out faction is waiting to pounce on whatever bad news you you will will happen. And it just so happens that the confluence of all this bad news that are happening is threatens, in fact, threat, threatens the very number one goal of the CCP. The primary goal of the CCP is to stay in power forever and ever, right? And so to stay as long as they can. So whatever that will take away from that primary goal, the factions underneath will all realign, you know? And to the extent that it's based on performance legitimacy, it all comes down to Xi Jinping and the fact that he has concentrated power in himself means that he owns the shop, right? It's up to him to break it or make it. And so it's very clear now, he owns the policy and therefore the responsibility falls on him. Yeah, yeah. And it'd be quite interesting to see what happens within the Politburo itself, not on the foreign affairs side, but on the economic side. You know, I understand that they have appointed a new uh, governor or president of the uh, People's Bank of China, which is their central bank. And I wonder whether you will see some more changes in the Ministry of, of Economics and, you know, the economics and industry and the finance and all of that stuff to deal particularly with what they're facing because this is like everything coming in uh, all yeah, at the that, same time. There's definitely going to be lots of changes, right? Because like I told you the other day, the the country's top military judge was replaced. And then now the word out of China is that the defense minister has been missing for two weeks. Has not been cited in any of, any of, uh, any kind of like public appearances. And you, you look at the, the thing about 
China's economy and the real estate, like Country Garden, that's now on the verge of bankruptcy and everything. The contagion risk to the region as well is so big. Malaysia, yeah. Country Garden but, is like the biggest land developer in Malaysia at the moment with so many projects, especially in Johor. Johor yes, was, that's right. That's right. Johor was counting on Country Garden to help build up their special economic uh, zones that were supposed to bring in all these Chinese investments that that will kickstart their the, the growth of the state. Yeah. And 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 here Malaysia just yesterday announced that they're going to increase defense spending by ten percent. Where they're going to get find the money to to buy the the mm. ships that they need, you know, to mm. replace the 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 ships that they don't even work and and replace the aircraft that don't even work because they're afraid of China. But mm. you know. Chinese investments were their, their biggest source of income. Yeah, and 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 one risk for for China, with regards to this economic, quote unquote, the uh, meltdown, mini meltdown, is the fact that it also threatens their foreign policy side, and that foreign policy side is their brick uh, belt and road initiative. Mm-hmm. So if you are now needing all those money to come back and make sure that you have the home economy fix, then there's lesser money for Belt and Road. You know, so that's that's something that we definitely have to watch out for. June? Yeah, uh, not only lesser money for the Belt and Road, Alex, but some states that have been part of the initiative have, in fact, um, have committed sovereign assets like ports and so on. And one wonders if China is moving along a continuum of performance legitimacy for now, when does it start moving towards being slightly more coercive because of these two kind of uh, coalescing trends between domestic economic problems and the need to draw resources from one realm to the other from where it originally invested BRI yeah. once? And and yeah. it's so looking bad for this. That was last are... week when they published that map again, which uh, pissed, off, pissed all of us off. That's right. That's right. That's right. From yeah. India hey, I, to Bharat. Yeah. To, yeah. To yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Hey, we have a we, we only have a few minutes left, and I do want to uh, ask Nick this particular question to wrap up our session today. Uh, with with the fact that Xi Jinping has missed is missing this BRICS meeting, the problems that China is facing in its economy, and you mentioned about the the likely implications to foreign policy and to the international relations of Asia Pacific. Do you see this as an opening for, you know, uh, the United States or for India, for the EU even, uh, to fill that likely, you know, the gap that China would present? Is there a chance for them to do that? Well, the, the fact of the matter is that over the last two, three years, all these actors have had a more active uh, presence and policy in respect to Indo-Pacific region. So... It's not as if the opening has just emerged now and they're all jumping in. But for the last two years already, they, they've been expressing interest, have been more active in the region. And so this, if anything, serves as a reminder that the region profits from having extra regional actors playing a role in the region, a positive role, right? a stabilizing mm-hmm. role. Right mm-hmm. Now, we're not calling for... Um, no... no, no Foreign policy actor will pursue a policy without attention to their own interests. So we know that. But the fact that there are so many of them is more likely to ensure that these interests get balanced out and moderated. 
So I'm actually cautiously optimistic for the region's uh, international politics, be precisely because that you get so many actors. In effect, you get you know, the high-level great power aspect to it, the US-China strategic competition. But like we've been talking, you get the agency of the um, kind of middle-ranked powers, and then you mm -hmm. get the smaller powers also playing their own role. And the interconnections, if anything, are probably going to stabilize things as we move forward. And just to come back to the theme of, of India, a strong India is good for the region. I think so. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I th mm. I th it, it, because, again, it gives us many different poles, so to speak. Uh, I think the theme of today's talk and our chat today really is uh, fishing in muddy waters, as Orson would put it, or the other way to put it, it's this is uh, you know more the merrier mm -hmm. kind of idea that from ASEAN with all these multiple ties that are coming in, India doing the same thing. In a way, the uh, the unfortunate meltdown of the Chinese economy, but also allowing us in the region to have more agency in finding our partners as well. So, you know, I, I, we can end this uh, chat today, and but I do want to just quickly point to the fact that this is an opportunity for the United States and for the EU to think about when you do come in and when you engage with the region, you know, make sure you come in with some tangible things that we can chew on, right? I mean, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework sounds really nice, you know, but it's a virtual carrot, <laughs> you know? And last I know, when you eat a virtual carrot, you don't get full, you know? We want to eat real carrots, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, with all the beta carotene and all the proteins that come along it and the fibers, okay? So that's what we want. So just a reminder to, you know, for listeners uh, uh, elsewhere other than New Zealand that, Market access is what the region is looking for, right? This is very, very important because at the end of the day, our economies are still developing. They are developing economies. They are very export dependent. And diversification would also mean that the mature markets of uh, the industrial West should open up uh, to the region for market access of our products. So with that, uh, the more the merrier, as we say, <laughs> Uh, is a good thing. That's a good thing for the region. And with uh, Nick's relatively optimistic note of the future of in the international relations of Asia Pacific, uh, we'll end our discussion today and thank all our listeners again for listening to our program, subscribing to our program. And we always have fun uh, doing this. And uh have to say, uh, we brought all our equipment all the way to Prague just not to miss... <laughs> producing this program today and uh, working on a 10-hour difference between those based in New Zealand and those based uh, temporarily in the beautiful Czech Republic capital of Prague. So thank you very much. Have a very uh, good day and thanks for listening to Views from Down Under.